Okay, I am back, and uh, we're going to do a third episode of Season 2, if you don't mind. Again, I'm trying to keep up with one week, short episodes, quick-hitting topics, and kind of like to do current events if they're relevant. But, you know, I don't think there's been anything this week uh, that's been uh, necessary to talk about on this particular podcast. The week prior... Bob Saget and Betty White died, but there really isn't a ton to talk about with either one of those. I made a YouTube video about the Bob Saget case, just basically talking about what happens when we find somebody dead in a hotel room, the kind of things that we look for. And then Betty White, I mean, she was almost 100 years old, and so she lived longer than most of us, and there really wasn't a whole lot to say in that case. So no current events this week to talk about. So we're going to talk about what are the moments during autopsy that are um, faint inducing. In other words, what will cause people to faint or cause people to run out screaming or uh, cause people to never want to ever talk to me again, um, at least from an autopsy perspective. I, I think I've made a lot of people never want to talk to me again, but uh, that's more of a personality trait. Anyway, uh, the reason why I did this is because I have a lot of people who ask me, what can I do to get into your field? And, you know, it's it's tough because a lot of states won't let people come and watch autopsies. So therefore, you have a lot of people who can't observe a case and know whether or not they could handle it. So I'm going to tell you, if you can see an autopsy, you should. Uh, And certainly if you're in the health professions, I think it's a little bit easier to get in and do that. And certainly if you're going into a field like mine, usually you can find somebody that will accommodate you. But I also get asked, what should I look out for? You know, am I going to handle it? Am I going to fall to the floor? and faint. And the answer is, um, you really don't know until you do it. Okay. So, uh, my first case, uh, which I think I talked about it in one of the podcasts that I did last season. And, um, I wrote about it in a magazine article and, uh, it was anxiety producing, but it wasn't a, uh, a fear moment. It wasn't something where I really felt like something I was going to, you know, snap or something. And so I managed to handle it. I think that you have a first in every kind of case, you know, you'll have like the first person that's your age. You'll have your first child. You'll have your first murder. You'll have your first um, horrific uh, industrial accident. And so every new first brings up new opportunities. And so, um, you know, it's really difficult to predict how you'll respond. But I'm going to do a real quick podcast here and talk about my observations of when people kind of like lost it in the room. Either they, uh, you know, they started to faint or they just felt sick and ran out or whatever. And so there's really just a handful and they're pretty specific. So, you know, first is just opening the body bag. Um, you have a body there. This used to be a person who was animated and walking around and talking and probably didn't know they were going to die. Um, that can sometimes be a little bit jarring to people. Um, if they're in healthcare that usually they do just fine with it. But a lot of times we'll have people who are not in healthcare who come for their first autopsy. And this would be like a rookie police officer who hasn't seen a case before. Or, uh, sometimes we used to let people, um, 
come from the community. Sometimes they would observe. They've never seen that before. Uh, sometimes we have attorneys who co- will come in. They have to do it as part of uh, being in their law office. It's just like a requirement for them or uh, particularly prosecutor's offices. And, um, you know, sometimes that opening that bag, can you can just see the person turning gray. And usually we kind of have to give them, you know, kind of stop and say, hey, are you okay? Um, never had anybody faint on that one. But now we do kind of a preemptive thing where if we have somebody new in the autopsy, uh, in, the, in the morgue, we will, we will tell them kind of like a little spiel. So in other words, um, don't get, don't freak out. This is all about the science. It's about discovering why the person died. And ultimately it's about delivering justice if it's a legal case or delivering closure if it's uh, not a legal case and, you know, it's just like a um, natural type death or it's, it's something where the family needs to know why the person died we will uh, provide closure. And so usually when we frame it like that, uh, the person handles it pretty well. But I always uh, give an, an add, add on to that disclaimer. And I say, if you feel like you're going to faint, get out. Like, leave the room because the last person you want uh, helping you after you've hit the floor is me, a pathologist covered in blood. I'm not going to be as good as somebody who's in EMS and who's used to people uh, in dire straits. If somebody faints in my morgue, I'm probably going to have just somebody else go deal with it because I I can't. Uh, and fortunately, we haven't had that come up really too much, but I personally uh, don't want to have to deal with that. So I just tell people, look, there's a, a door 20 feet away. You can go outside and get some oxygen. You can sit down. But just if you're feeling weird, get out. So if you ever do an autopsy with me, you're going to get that spiel no matter who you are, like if you've never seen it before. So opening the bag hasn't been a problem. So then I always tell people that the next part is um, because we draw toxicology. We try to draw toxicology first before we do anything else. And so that's blood and vitreous. Usually we get urine when we get inside the body. We can actually um, take a syringe and put it in the bladder. But we try to get um, blood externally. We try to put a a needle into the femoral artery or femoral vessels and draw out blood. And that's usually not a problem for people, but vitreous is a problem. So what's vitreous fluid? So in your eye, there is a clear jelly-like substance called vitreous humor. Okay. And we will put a needle into the eye to draw that out. And I know you're thinking, if you haven't seen this, you're thinking, well, why would you do that? That just seems, you know, like unnecessary. Well, the fact is with vitreous fluid, it's actually an excellent fluid for toxicology. And um, it's very good for some things. Number one is alcohol. Um, If you're looking at a blood alcohol concentration and you you get the vitreous alcohol concentration, you can uh, make a comparison because the vitreous lags behind in metabolism by a couple of hours. And you can actually make a comparison and say, was this person still drinking and still raising their blood alcohol? Was this person at equilibrium? Or was this person kind of like already metabolizing and had stopped drinking? Sometimes that's relevant. Uh, Second is electrolytes. So, you know, you've got like sodium and uh, I'm not going to go through every electrolyte. Potassium's not good for the vitreous, but sodium is. So if you have hypernatremia, high sodium, or hyponatremia, low sodium, um, it's excellent to uh, look at the vitreous for the electrolytes. 
Okay, so lastly would be glucose. And glucose is, of course, the blood sugar. And if the glucose is very low, it's not very helpful because um, after death, your glucose gets sucked into your cells as they're kind of like, you know, uh, basically struggling to survive. All the glucose is going to get used up because ultimately your cells want to survive and it'll use up all the glucose in the area. But if the glucose is high, that can be very useful to tell you if somebody was having a diabetic complication, such as diabetic ketoacidosis. And that would be the other thing that you're going to look for in vitreous is ketones. Now, um, ketones, I'm not going to go through the biochemistry of ketones here. It's a little beyond what we need to do. But we're going to have uh, ketones in there if we're having a diabetic ketoacidosis. So vitreous fluid is very important. And I probably went on a little bit of a tangent there, but I wanted to give you a little background on why we do it. We don't do it just to see if people will pass out. We do it for a reason for our decedent, our patient there. And a lot of people don't do well with that needle in the eye. Um, uh, I've noticed a lot of police officers will tell me, um, I can't even look at the body while you're doing it. So sometimes we'll give them a little warning. We'll say, hey, we're going to do vitreous, and then they can sort of stare off into the stare into the wall or look out the door or something like that. So, um, you know, there's a natural aversion, I think, to seeing a needle go into the eye, but that would be one of the other times where we've had people have to leave. Okay, so that's the vitreous draw. Now, the next part is going to be the opening incision. And for me, that was the big one. When I was a young pathologist, uh, pathology resident, and I was getting ready to do my first autopsy, I mean, that's the one that really I was worried about, like if, if something was going to happen physiologically to me, in other words. Um, because, you know, you have to kind of press on the skin and you have to find where you're going to cut. And usually you start at one shoulder and you come to the center of the chest. And then you start at the other shoulder and you come down and form a V and then you draw it down the abdomen and you form a Y. That's why it's called a Y-shaped incision. And my first autopsy, uh, the woman had died very recently and like within the last couple of hours. And so when I pressed on the flesh, you know, to kind of like map out where I was going to cut, it was very soft and very supple and very much like a living person. And so the difference is with someone who's been dead a while, like many hours or a couple of days, um, and in the cooler, usually the body is a little more firm. So rigor mortis is set in uh, and the muscles are firm and the tissue, the soft tissue itself is a little bit harder because um, as you cool the fat down, it becomes a little more waxy. I always tell people, okay, opening incision is the other one. And uh, frankly, everyone seems to do pretty well with the opening incision more than I would have expected. But really what comes after the opening incision, I think, is the one that bothers people, uh, and that's opening and taking the chest plate off. Okay, what do I mean by chest plate? Um, if you feel the center of your chest, there's a very hard area, and the common name for it is the breastbone, but it's it's the sternum. That's the name of the bone, and from that, the sternum, the ribs uh, kind of come from the vertebral bodies around and attached to the sternum, and that's the rib cage. So you have to take off the chest plate, which is um, the anterior ribs in connection with the sternum. Well, how do we do that? There's two ways we do it. One is with a saw, and that's usually not a problem for people. You turn on the bone saw, you press it through the ribs, you go all the way up to the um, sternoclavicular joint where the clavicle meets the sternum right in the middle, and then you can dissect it right off no problem. But sometimes we use loppers. 
Okay. And I just had talked about that before. If you've been listening to my podcasts, um, loppers are like branch cutters and they are literally from Lowe's or your local hardware store. Uh, you know, Lowe's should, they should actually sponsor me. So anybody listening to this Lowe's, if you want to just sponsor me and, uh, or maybe Home Depot, you can sponsor me uh, because we're using your cutting tools to open ribs sometimes. Um, but anyway, to, to preserve the bone saw, Sometimes we won't use the saw itself. We will use the loppers and they crunch. So when you cut through each rib, there's a very loud crunch and it is the crunch of bone. And so that has caused issues um, with people as well um, because it is an unsightly kind of thing to see that. But that is a very common tool um, in for for the forensic pathologist it's it's common because it's it works really well uh, but it can be kind of unusual to see that and i know that many forensic pathologists will use those and some people will just use the bone saw um, again we don't always use the saw because uh, we don't have a lot of backup saws and backup blades so we try to pres preserve the saw itself but i'd say you know 30 percent of the time i use a saw and 70 percent of the time i use a lopper so like big you know cutting device um and it's mainly not not necessarily the sight of seeing that but the sound because not very many people are accustomed to hearing the crunching sound of human bones um, so next would be after we take the chest plate off, if you've made it that far, you're doing pretty well. There's a very good chance you're going to be able to make it through the autopsy. But once you open the abdomen, once you make the incision through the skin, through the subcutaneous tissue and through the peritoneum, you open it up. Invariably, you get the smell of the intestines. Okay, so the smell of the autopsy comes from the intestines. And why is that? Well, because bacterial growth in the intestines produce aromatic compounds that don't smell very good. They're sulfur-containing compounds. So if you have a really strong sense of smell, sometimes that can bother people. I know the smell, uh, and it gets worse as decomposition proceeds. So if you autopsy somebody a couple of hours after they died, there's really not much of a smell at all. But the longer you go, the more bacterial growth you have and the more aromatic compounds you have. So that's uh, problematic for people who have really strong senses of smell. Now, lately, it's not been as bad because with the pandemic, most people are wearing a pretty good fitting mask during the autopsy because, um, you know, obviously we have COVID maybe in the air um, from aerosol production with uh, sawing open the body and whatnot, uh, splashing of fluids, but also the living people that are there. You know, I'm, I'm more concerned about getting COVID from somebody that's living and inside of my morgue than I am the body itself. So most people are wearing masks, and as a result, that dampens the smell a little bit. Um, by the way, a little mask hack for you, and if you haven't figured, you know, out how to use it yet, um, then two years into a pandemic, then maybe I can't help you. But people always complain about not being able to breathe in a mask. And frankly, I don't like it either. Uh, I never liked wearing N95 masks because sometimes we'd have to wear them in med school if we had a TB patient, or sometimes we would have to wear them uh, during residency if we had some kind of infectious disease patient or a, um, a dead patient who may have had an infection, whether it be MRSA or TB or something like that. And I hate, hate, hate wearing an N95 mask the whole time because I feel like I can't breathe. Well, 
I decided, um, you know, at, when the pandemic started, I couldn't risk not wearing an N95 mask. So I breathed through my mouth. And so I'm a mouth breather, basically, right? Um, but I breathe through my mouth, and I find that the smell, the sensation of the smell isn't as bad. So if I have a decomposed body, uh, if I have a really smelly body for some other reason, if I have a burned body, which can be very uh, kind of caustic smelling, I... Uh, I don't smell it very much because I have my N95 seal, I breathe through my mouth, and I don't have as strong as, of a sensation. So if you ever want a little hack there, just become a mouth breather for a little bit while you have your N95 on. Um, also, the other bad one uh, in terms of the bowel is the stomach contents. So people always ask me, is there anything that makes you gag as a pathologist? And, and truthfully, no, I have a really strong stomach. But stomach contents are disgusting, absolutely disgusting. Because, I mean, a lot of times you can see exactly what somebody was eating right before they died. And, um, you know, it's... it's <laughs> And obviously, right? But sometimes, you know, it's chewed up well enough or it's just like a paste type material. It's not so bad. But uh, the problem is, is that once the food and drink hit the hydrochloric acid in the stomach, you start to get more arom aromatic compounds forming. Sometimes it can be really acrid smelling. Um, and then if you have any decomposition setting in, stomach contents are, are really way more horrific than the bowel contents. So sometimes the stomach contents will cause people to feel sick and want to leave. Um, there was one coroner that I worked with and she was a seasoned coroner. You know, she, uh, had seen all of these terrible things and sometimes she would come into my autopsies and watch. But when it was time to cut the stomach, I had to warn her. I would say, Hey, we're getting ready to cut the stomach because that's the one thing that she could not, uh, stand was the seeing the stomach contents. And I agree to this day, after thousands of autopsies that I've done, it's still the worst part of the autopsy for me. Um, and, you know, I had one case once, and I'll, and I'll talk more about this case sometime in the future, but basically it was a person that died in a hotel room uh, with the um, temperature, the thermostat set to like 80, 88 degrees for some reason. And so they decomposed and they... Um, had been, they had died essentially of an acute alcoholic intoxication. So the stomach was filled with, uh, this like alcohol decomposing food and the heat made it all that much worse. And when I opened those stomach contents, um, I basically had to hold my breath for the entire time. And then I had some medical students with me and they were completely plastered against the wall as far away as possible. And, uh, you know, this it's, uh, so again, stomach contents can be horrific depending on the situation. So uh, the next thing is sometimes things are said during autopsy that can disturb people. Things that I say that sound normal to me and fine to me, um, heard from an observer can cause, can trigger a reaction. And uh, I can think of one case, um, oh, actually a couple of different cases where um, we note it, that the body is warm while we're autopsying. So if you autopsy somebody within, say, 12 hours of death, um, 12, even 16 hours sometimes, the interior of the body will still be warm. Now, that's not to say that it's going to be the actual body temperature, the 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, but um, basically the external surface of the body will be cool. You'll open the body up. And then as we start to dissect, you kind of feel that it's warm. And I had one case where, um, a woman had come to the autopsy and 
she basically with, was with somebody who had come to visit. And um, I put my hands into the abdomen and I commented that it was warm. It's, it's actually, um, this guy is still warm, I think I said. And I didn't even realize that that would bother her. This is the first autopsy she had ever been to. And I kind of glanced over and she looked like she was turning green. Um, and she basically, that's the one person I've had that basically ran out. I mean, sprinted, bust the door open, run down the hall. Um, and I literally never saw that person again. And if you know me, uh, you've heard me tell that story a couple of times. And uh, it may have even appeared in one of my previous podcasts. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fatigued and can't remember everything that I say. But, um, but yeah, so the, the commenting on the body, the warmth of the body, that seems to bother people a little bit. I've had uh, just a couple of people faint uh, in, in my entire career. And one of them was... Uh, kind of a partial fainting that dealt with uh, kind of describing how the body felt. I don't know why that bothered the person, but they actually went to the ground, but they didn't lose consciousness. And then they sort of dragged her out of there. <laughs> and she did a really good job because she went and had something to drink or something of that nature. And she came back in and finished the autopsy. And I was like, wow, real trooper there. I would have been gone. I would have been just out of embarrassment alone. I, I would, have, would have left. But she did a really good job. And then, um, so the, the sights and smells can be bad. But then you have the sounds, okay? So the sounds of autopsy, I think, can be triggering for some people. And I guess I really should have recorded this and played it here in the podcast. But um, it's there, when you open the head, there are a couple of different sounds that seem to really trigger people. And, and you know, the uh, the first is now the last time I did an autopsy, I'd, or I'm sorry, a podcast, I described opening the head and folding the scalp forward over the face. Uh, but I didn't describe what that sounded like. Um, there is a very thin layer of tissue on the um, under the subcutaneous fat of the scalp that sort of is attached to the skull. And when you fold it forward, it makes kind of a ripping sound. Um, it's what's well, kind of a neat sound, actually. I kind of like it, to be honest. But some people cannot stand that ripping sound because it's little, uh, almost like spiderweb a, a consistency of tissue the, in between the scalp and the skull. And there's, there's few things more satisfying than taking a razor-sharp scalpel and dissecting that tissue away from the scalp. Um, it's one of my favorites. I know I'm a bit of a weirdo, but that's fine. You guys knew that already. Um, oh, by the way, I'm a little bit hoarse right now, um, but don't worry, I'm not sick. I made the mistake of eating a Jolly Rancher before I got on to record this. And so basically my assistant gave me a bag of Jolly Ranchers a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't had them for like 20 years. And uh, I've now developed a crippling addiction to Jolly Ranchers. And so I put the Jolly Rancher in there and it melted down. And now the inside of my mouth and throat is coated with this uh, syrupy, thick uh, candy. So that's why I sound a little bit hoarse today. I apologize for that. Anyway, so we have the uh, folding of the scalp. Sometimes the sight of that can be a little disturbing as well because um, the skull, I mean, it looks like any skull you would see in an anatomical model. So it's weird to see a person who used to be alive laying there and then all of a sudden 
you know, you just see the top of their skull. Um, sometimes that's a bothersome for people. And I'll have to admit the first couple of autopsies I did, that was an unusual sight for me as well. Um, but then we go ahead and get the bone saw out. There's no shortcuts there. You can't use loppers to open a skull. You have to go through and saw the top of the skull, uh, skull open and remove that calvarium. And so there are two moments, uh, there are two sounds associated with that. Uh, the first is the insertion of the skull key. So you make a cut in the bone all the way around, and then to actually remove that calvarium, there's a tool called a skull key. And uh, there are actually other names for that tool. I'm not going to get into that right now. But basically, it's T-shaped. You put it into the groove that you just cut, and you turn it quickly. You turn it like you're, you know, turning a knob on something, and it cracks the skull open. It doesn't produce an injury. Don't, don't get me wrong. We're not being harmful to the body, but it cracks the remaining um, attachments of the skull away from the area that's been cut. And so that loud pop can sometimes be bothersome to people. And then at that point, you basically gently insert your fingers in between uh, the, the skull that's still attached and the skull that you've, you've sawed, and you pull back. And when you pull back, it pulls the periosteum and the dura mater away from the skull, uh, the calvarium itself. And when it pulls it away, it's yet again another, like almost like a, a sucking and ripping sound at the same time. It's got a, a kind of a hollow sound to it, and that sound can be really unusual and disturb people. And uh, but again, a handful of people uh, have have been you know troubled by this. Um, and uh, you know, I will say this: in the future, I will record these in some kind of high-definition way, and I will play them for you, or I'll have them in videos, because you really have to see this stuff uh, but uh, and hear this stuff. But like I said, not very many people have, have gone down during my cases, and I did this podcast for people who are interested in possibly attending an autopsy. Those are your moments that I've noticed that people seem to get you know, kind of like, uh, upset with, but by and large, the, uh, the vast majority of people come in and they do the case and they absolutely have no problem with it at all. And I think that if you go, there's a very good chance you're going to do just fine with it. You just have to have the mindset that this is science, this is anatomy, and ultimately this is closure for the family. And when you put it in that mindset, I think you tend to do a lot better with it. You're not thinking about it as a person, a living person that's laying there. And uh, one of the things I'm thinking about doing is making a sticker that says, like, I survived my first autopsy or baby's first autopsy or something like that. And then handing that out to anybody who doesn't have a reaction, uh, anybody. And that can be kind of like a, a, a little chip for them, you know, a little, it's maybe like a badge. You know how people used to get those letter jackets and they used to put badges on them or they used to put their graduating year? Well, they can put a little badge on there, a little iron on that says, I survived my first autopsy. So I don't know, maybe I'll put that in my merch store as well. Um, although I don't actually have a merch store, but a lot of people have asked for that and I'm working on it. My agent's working on it. So just be calm. I have a day job, so I'm going to get to this stuff soon. Speaking of that, um, I'm going to be, um, in my earlier podcasts, I talk about the knife after death website and, uh, my friend, my good friend who I've known for many, many years, who I've known for like 35 something years, um, 
he is helping me restart that website up and we're going to be putting a lot more content on there because I found that my social media is limiting. Okay, so I'm on, you know, TikTok and all this stuff and a lot of these places will ban anything that's even slightly grotesque. And so it's difficult to teach pathology if you're not going to allow images to be shown. So TikTok is pretty much worthless for me other than, you know, answering questions. YouTube limits my videos if I show anything uh, that's a little bit untoward. So we're thinking about um, putting that stuff up at Knife After Death. And uh, you can see there's a little sign-up place there. And I know that there's people listening to this saying, oh, man, I signed up for that like a year ago and I didn't get anything from you. You're a terrible person and you should just stop making uh, content. But, uh, you know, you have to you have to bear with me. I did have the busiest year of my career in 2021, so I wasn't able to devote time to it. And now I actually have someone to help me. And um, so keep a lookout for that. And uh, you can go to the website. There's, it's still being built kind of right now. It's still kind of we're working on putting the content on there. And um, I'll keep you guys updated. But I hope this podcast was helpful. And if you do have to go see an autopsy, um, then, you know, maybe this will uh, help usher that in uh, without too much nervousness for you. Okay. Uh, with that being said, um, I'll talk to you next time. 